Hi, I'm Paul Jay, and welcome to the Analysis.News podcast. I've been a fan of the Australian juice media for years. The biting satire, combined with a deep political critique, is, in my opinion, without equal anywhere. I've been publishing a few of their pieces on the analysis.news and will continue to do so. Here's a few recent clips dealing with the COVID pandemic and the disastrous response from elites around the world. Hello, I'm from the government with an update on the pandemic. As you know, in order to flatten the curve, we've had to turn off the machine. The machine has not been turned off for a long, long time. Nobody even remembers who turned it on. So please bear with us as we consult the manual after pricing it from the shitted pants of capitalism and figure out what to do next. While we wait, we thought we should have a little chat about what just happened. Scientists had been warning us for decades to prepare for this crisis. Did we? Of course not. The machine said there was no profit in preventing future crises. So instead, most of us opted for an alternative policy. Total fucking panic dead people and bullshit. Here at the Chinese government, this meant covering up the virus and deaths. Disappearing truth tellers. Arresting activists while no one's watching. Making up conspiracies. Making the who our bitch. And then trying to cast ourselves as the saviors of the world. Here at the British government, where we spent the past decade bankrupting the NHS, this sentient ham caught the virus and almost died of irony as his life was saved by the migrant nurses we've been blaming for unemployment. In Europe, we care about unity, so we turned our backs on the Italians and said cazzi vostri. In Brazil, where our fascist fuckchop still thinks it's just the flu, we left it to street gangs to protect the favelas. In India, we stoked violence against Muslims by blaming them for the virus. In Poland and Hungary, we gave up on democracy. In North Korea, we slipped into a coma. And in Belarus, we told you to drink vodka and left you to crowdfund your own healthcare. Vaina y normalna. But nowhere has our policy been more evident than in backward countries and failed states, like the US. Here, as thousands of people died and got buried in mass graves, Il Touche left you to fight each other over medical equipment by entrusting it to his little shit goblin-in-law. No, this isn't a dystopian sci-fi flick. This is the result of four cancerous decades of neoliberal shitfuckery. Sure, in some places we aren't doing too badly. Here at the Australian government, we shocked the world by not being the shittest for once. And in New Zealand, we depressed the world by reminding you that unfortunately this isn't your leader. But sadly, when it comes to flattening that other much, much bigger curve that scientists have also been warning us about for decades, it won't be enough for only some of us to get it right. Closing our borders won't help. We either all nail it, or we all total fucking panic dead people and bullshit. Juice is the brainchild of Giordano Nanni, an Australian historian, author, satirist, and video producer. He writes and creates the videos in a backyard home studio in suburban Melbourne, Australia. Giordano's completed a PhD in history, writing about settler colonialism, and published two academic books, The Colonization of Time and Corin Dirk, we will show the country. And how he can write all of that and still be funny, I guess we're about to find out. In 2016, Giordano launched the Honest Government Advert Series, collaborating with his partner and voice actor Lucy, and actors Ellen Burbridge 
and Zoe Amanda Wilson. These women have the remarkable ability to draw you in as if the ads are real, and then with a broad smile, tell us something is actually shit fuckery and crack me up every time, even though I know it's coming. Thank you for joining us, Giordano. Thank you very much for having me on, Paul. So, well, first of all, let's start with that question. We're at this most critical and existential moment, and you're able to get funny and, and use satire, and, and that takes a certain kind of focus and crazy mindset. How do you rise to that week after week? Well, um, it's a good question. I I don't know exactly. Um, I guess probably the important thing to say is that it's not week after week. I feel like this kind of uh, heavy topic, uh, even in the form of satire, is a bit too much to deal with on a weekly basis. Uh, we put out a video once a month, and um, I feel like the audience, probably that's like a good, we, we seldom get like, hey, can you make more of these? I think people are like, yep, that's about enough. That's what we can handle for now. Um, you know, So we do a video once a month. Um, I find it therapeutic. I think laughing about the situation um, that we're in or finding some comedy or, you know, being able to sort of take a, um, what you might call a lighthearted, or I don't think of it as lighthearted. I think of it as quite um, um, hard-edged, biting angle, but nevertheless uh, satirical, uh, is a form of therapy, really. I do it primarily to keep myself sane. And I think one of the reasons that uh, it resonates so strongly with people out there, in fact, I know this um, because we get so many emails and messages from people saying, you know, thank you so much for doing what you do. You've, you know, um, uh, it, it keeps us, you know, it lifts our spirits and it makes us see the, you know, the, some hope in, in the situation. And it's, you know, it really helped me to pass through this period of my life or, you know, all sorts of people have different approaches to it. But, um, so many people, um, kind of feel it, that has some sort of what I might call therapeutic benefit. Um, yeah. So I feel like it's actually, uh, quite a beneficial way of approaching, um, the news, let's say. So I know what it's like in a sense, what you're going through because you deal with these topics that are you know, dangerous, uh, they're you know, threatening. We're, and we're at a very critical turning point right now in t 2020, uh, the pandemic, of course, which is probably the first of more to come, climate crisis, which we have, what, less than a decade now to see serious action. And we're not gonna, that much is clear now. The deep economic collapse in much of the world, uh, I'll ask you later how this is going to seem to be affecting Australia, but certainly in the United States and, and to can in Canada, there's whole sections of the population that are not only going to be in poverty, are going to experience hunger. And these are s sections of the working class that never imagined they'd be in that situation, of course, in the United States and in Canada, too. There's been lots of poor people all along, but just not in the numbers that, that's going to happen now. And then the other thing I live with, because I'm working on a documentary series with Daniel Ellsberg, so I'm kind of more aware of it, the danger of nuclear war, you know, more likely accidental, but almost inevitable if something doesn't change in terms of nu nuclear uh, weapons strategy. And because these issues I deal with all the time, I sort of they preoccupy my mind, which is a hell of a way to go through life, uh, which is the same for you. And then I go back to this. Uh, you're able to, to use satire 
to you know help people understand what's going on. But what's your take on on the current moment? Yeah, um, I mean, I, I that's such a great question. <laughs> it's such a broad question, and uh, I really like sort of remembering the bigger picture here. Um, I feel like you know the, the things that you've described um, in a way are not new. In a way, we've we've been on this journey of precariousness, of um, inequality, widening inequality gaps, of um, um, increased uncertainty about our future. Um, in many ways, it's not a linear sort of trajectory that we've been on. And I'm talking about you know the journey that humanity has been on, you know, since recorded history. Um, you know, there have been periods in which um, Things have improved in many, many ways. Um, and I don't mean to sound like some, you know, person that would be like, you know, everything's gotten worse. Um, but certainly we've reached what, what we might call a great filter moment with, um, our moment now on the planet, uh, you know, being really kind of brought into a reality check of, are we going to be able to, live on this planet, you know, because of the, the twin crisis that you've mentioned, nuclear proliferation and the climate emergency, I feel like the latter is even more of a threat because whilst the former can be and has been checked, somehow we've managed not to annihilate ourselves, even though, you know, the finger's been on the button probably more times than we care to know. But the climate emergency is something that can't just be reversed. The, the mechanisms are already in motion. Uh, we are already heading for an incredible upheaval due to the climate emergency. Uh, and even if we take action right now, um, those mechanisms, that those wheels are in motion already. So it's really a case of, you know, we needed to stop doing what we we're doing business as usual yesterday. Hello, I'm from the Australian Government, here to bring you a special weather forecast. Australia is about to head into a federal election. This means you can expect a high pressure system of bullshit to form over Canberra. The bullshit will spread across the continent rapidly thanks to topical cyclone Rupert, causing scattered showers of misplaced fears of refugees that will distract voters from the real existential threat we face. Climate catastrophe, you know, Rivers vomiting up dead fish, roads melting, Tasmania on fire, townsville underwater, crocs cruising the streets, and the first mammal just went extinct due to rising sea levels. Cool and normal. Few will emerge from this election without being covered in bullshit, especially children, who'll be the ones to pay for it. That's why they're skipping school and going on strike, because they know this is a crisis requiring an emergency response. Lucky for us, the little shits can't vote yet. Go, Go back, back to, to school, school, little shits. shits. Then you can one day become a scientist whose climate change science we can ignore. As you can see, we care about climate change and your kids' future. That's why our coal fondler-in-chief has just announced the Climate Bullshit Fund. Will it help us meet our Paris emissions target in a canter? Sure, by using accounting tricks rather than reducing actual emissions. Your grandchildren will love hearing that story whilst playing Survivor on a dead planet fucked by our dickhead accountant ancestors. Um, nevertheless, uh, you know, the realization that these uh, issues, especially the climate emergency, I'm heartened by the fact that there is a real uh, massive uh, uh, awareness uh, campaign that is under underway that has really kicked off um, last year. And every, every one of these crises helps to really shape and color it in a bit more and make it more detailed. We, the, the fires that we had here in Australia were an incredible awareness raising experience. I changed everything. 
And in one way, you could say that this helped Australia to really deal with the pandemic much better than it would have otherwise. I don't think we would have been as good at dealing with the COVID-19 emergency had we not had the, the fires because the fires really really gave us a glimpse into what it is to be in a state of emergency, what it is to be in a state where you need to listen to experts. Um, and there was no tolerance. There was zero tolerance here in the community after the fires for dealing that way with the, the COVID-19. And Hello, I'm from the government with an important message as we enter the third decade of the 21st century. Things are going, uh, fine. Overall, the Amazon is fine. Half of Africa is fine. So is the Arctic. Indonesia, Spain, Greece. Even Greenland's on fucking fire. I mean, fine. Scientists have coined a new term for this stage of climate change we're entering. We're fucked. Unlike the previous stage, which climate scientists called listen to us or we might be fucked, we're fucked is happening and in your lifetime. This is thanks to us wasting decades piss-farting around at climate summits with non-binding emission targets, whilst handing out subsidies to climate criminals, obstructing renewables, and generally not giving a shit that rising CO2 levels are about to trigger what scientists call feedback loops. A feedback loop is the scientific term for when a species uses its own ignorance to screw itself and everything else around it so hard that its own planet tells it to git foe. Some people are already experiencing we're fucked, such as these Pacific nations facing rising sea levels, who recently begged Australia to please stop burning coal, to which Australia responded, get fucked. The combination of we're fucked and get fucked will cause wars to break out over access to food and water, except in America, where the chosen one will just nuke hunger. Would you like to know more? But please don't panic. If the realization that we're fucked troubles you, why not ride a bike to work, have shorter showers, or send thoughts and prayers? Just don't join the global climate strike this September or Extinction Rebellion in October. Because a sustained collective movement would force us to take drastic action and turn this ship around, which might just be doable if enough of you demand it. Or you could go to Area 51 and demand to see the aliens. In which case, we're definitely fucked. This has been a message from your local government franchise, authorised by the Department for Going Gentle into that good night. Our government listened, and it actually listened to experts, an unusual thing for our government, for our um, conservative government, which is you know not far behind um, you know the U.S. government in terms of its its policies. So I'm heartened by that, but at the same time, as you said, very alarmed, obviously, by the the moment that we're in. I feel like. We, you know, yes, we we are. Every day is a turning point, you know, and it just gets uh, tighter and tighter. And the 2020 election that you are about to have in, in the United States is going to define the century. Uh, 2016 was already a very defining election, but this one will really cement the course that we're on. So we're very concerned about it. It's not an election that is only going to affect. U.S. people, although obviously it, it, it's going to have a massive impact on your um, population at home, but it's going to define really the the course of the century. And the only the only silver lining that I could see in a Trump victory is that really it will force the rest of the world to take leadership on on, on these issues, which perhaps is what we need to see rather than waiting for the you know the the U.S. cloaked hero, Spider Man, Superman, what a Batman, whatever, um, you know, just sort of going it alone and um, and 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 um and but it's not it's not the way it should happen you know i hope that um that there that there will be um enough concern especially following the pandemic in the us to really cause people to think twice about whether this is the right direction to continue there, in there, there's a somewhat significant section of the left that you know was very pro bernie sanders 
um, who are really so far, at least quite adamant, that they won't vote for Biden. And some are even making the argument that Biden's really not that much better than a Trump and so on. Uh, you know, looking from Australia, what do you make of that argument? Um, I don't know. I feel like that Biden would be taking a step back to where things were before um, Trump. In, in a way, I feel like that was better, <laughs> you know? but I, I wouldn't say that that's a, I wouldn't say that that's a very good choice. I mean, I feel like that you know I feel like all the U.S. elections have all been a choice between uh, two, uh, you know, between a, an evil and a lesser evil, uh, whichever way you want to look at it, whichever candidate represents what for you. But there's never really been a, a different um, sort of option. Uh, and Bernie Sanders really represented that. Although, look, I should say Trump did represent a different option. I think that's why people voted for him. That's why you know he won that election. Is really people are tired of the same, uh, the same policies, the same empty promises and rhetoric. And Trump um, dared to offer something else. Um, obviously, not and uh, not not uh, you know he's a con man. Whereas I feel like someone like Bernie Sanders is offering something else, and he really means it. Um, I feel like that scared the shit out of uh, the Democratic establishment. And I have a feeling that they nominated Biden or they pushed to nominate Biden um, because they would rather lose than see uh, a socialist uh, platform, um, you know, taking over the United States. The Democratic uh, elite have themselves are deeply embedded in, in the neoliberal capitalist, uh, you know, um, Wall Street shit show. And I think they probably stand to lose. Uh, it's a very cynical approach. I don't know. I would like to think that that's not the case, but um, I, I, I think that that's potentially what we're looking at. My biggest regret is that, you know, I feel like 2016 was a, the best thing that you could say that that offered was a lesson, was a lesson in, uh, you know, um, in in uh, in the dangers of fielding this more of the same, Hillary Clinton being just more of the same. And um, the best thing that could have come out of that is a learning experience. Um, and instead of taking that lesson and going, okay, this time we're going to field a candidate who offers something different, um, they've gone for more of the same. And I feel like that's a hugely squandered lesson um, uh, that's gone to waste if, if Biden does become the, the nominee, which it seems to be the case. Yeah, unless the sex scandal really blows up uh, more than it has so far, he will be. Um, and then who knows what comes up with, because as you said, uh, they'd, they'd almost rather lose. I, I don't think they'd rather lose to Trump, but that being said, Thomas Frank, who wrote Whatever Happened to Kansas in Kansas uh, in an interview, told me, and I, I think he's right, that the Democratic Party establishment, it's not like they don't like the left of the Democratic Party or outside. They hate it. Mm. With a great passion, they hate it, and the, the uh, they they look at the Sanders-esque left as just something that gets in the way mm. of of them in in their minds how they justified for themselves holding back the right wing hordes. Mm. Um, except they don't want to look at their own uh, government when they're in power because it's the inequality gap that developed under. Obama Biden that set the table for Trump in the first place but that that part of it they don't want to look at but but I think it's very important when we do look at American politics that we get beyond not just the individuals of Biden and Trump and even the parties but it's really the finance sector that controls or tries to control the politics in the United States in both parties 
it's not to say there isn't a difference between the two parties. And I agree with you. I think Trump and, and, and the gang of the Republicans and the people around Trump are a real cabal of criminals. And uh, it, it is it will be a small step for them to create a kind of overt authoritarianism, you know, type of an American fascism. And this pandemic and the depression that's coming and the beginning, it looks like, of a, of a spontaneous resistance amongst workers, uh, you could see something like that coming. And there's a serious debate and discussion going on here about whether there even will be an election in November. And there's some very serious people that come to the conclusion that if Trump thinks he's going to lose, the pandemic will become the excuse uh, for not having it. Sure, I don't. Yeah, I don't think I don't think that's at all implausible. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think Trump sees himself as ever really being a former president. It's interesting, you know. At the moment, he's setting a very uh, interesting and dangerous precedent for investigating deeply, investigating a former president. Um, and uh, you, you might say that any president, any sitting president, doesn't really have. Um, much of an incentive um, and in fact has a disincentive to investigate his predecessor because he will one day too become uh, uh, you know a former president um, and if, if it becomes a normalized sort of uh, if you know if the American uh, legal and social sort of system uh, uh, normalizes the idea that it's okay to um, investigate and potentially prosecute a former president president what does that say has Trump thought this through um, and then you think, has he even really considered that he might not be president one day? You kind of get the sense that Trump doesn't really think he won't be president uh, again, you know, um, because otherwise it's really why would he be going after Obama? Obviously, it's his political platform. It's to distract from the pandemic. And I have a feeling that Obamagate is probably going to be the, the, the linchpin of the, of the Trump 2020 presidential campaign. Um, yeah, it's his, it's his new um, sort of Hillary Clinton email kind of scandal that um, – strategy that he's going to use in this uh, round, on top of, of course, the uh, uh, Joe Biden, Hunter Biden allegations in Ukraine, witch hunt hoax, hashtag hoax, uh, fake news, all that kind of crap. Um, but yeah. Cool. Let's go back to Australia. You said that there's been a real awakening on the climate uh, issue uh, because of the fires and drought and such. How, how is it affecting actual policy and politics? Well, look, I think that we'll see it. I mean, it'll be really interesting to see. I'm not holding my breath. I think um, there was a the period uh, when the pandemic hit in, in uh, it was, um, you know, early on in February, I think the, the government listened to experts and closed uh, its borders, um, reluctantly so to start, but then moved very fast. Um, and then it implemented uh, a number of policies to boost the economy by um, effectively guaranteeing employment for a lot of people um, and uh, sending out uh, checks um, and, uh, you know, basically sending money to employers to ensure that they could keep paying employ employers' um, salaries. A lot of uh, schemes doubling the New Start allowance, which is an allowance for um, unemployed people and also for, um, you know, people with um, – uh, disabilities or single single parents and, that, and so on. Um, now, the left, if you would call it that, here in Australia has been fighting for these things for the last, for the, since the start of the 
century, basically, uh, for the last two decades. And the this government has not budged. Uh, it has it hasn't wanted to raise the the new start allowance. It hasn't really provided. Um, it has it has cut away at. Um, and all of the sort of safety nets and sort of chipped away at the the, the um, you know the supporting um, what, what you might call the welfare system, um, and it was actually quite amazing to see this government taking such immediate action and introducing policies which had, had it had pushed back against for so long. And I think that that was the most incredible thing to see out as, as a result of the fires was that. Really, when when a society is in in this in effectively traumatized by the, an event on the scale that we saw here during the summer, um, there is there is much less ability for governments to be able to use ideological arguments to avoid taking responsibility and taking action to support those that need help. Um, and so we saw that that capital vanished. You know, the other thing is this government has been. Going on and on and on about the the but you know the federal budget, we have to keep the budget in surplus, which is complete nonsense mumbo jumbo. Uh, the, you know the federal budget doesn't matter. The government can print money. It doesn't. It's 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 bullshit. It's justified. It's using it's used to justify cutting uh, entitlements, cutting uh, services, cutting public. Um, benefits um and um and that's always been the case and then immediately when this um catastrophe hit uh, and the, the uh, i'm talking about the pandemic now and they knew the economy was going to tank and they knew people were already going to struggle all of that went out the window there was no more talk about the budget uh, surplus and you know they, they knew that they had to act um and i feel like potentially we might have had a situation more similar to the united states had we not had the fires so that's what i mean about raising awareness it's not necessarily raising awareness about climate emergency although that has happened too but our government has had to has had to listen to experts has had to change its stance and shift from ideology to actual evidence and facts how long that lasts will depend on how strongly the australian people hold this government to account how strongly our media our journalists which we have some good ones but most of them are crap as well um you know how strongly we push for this to be the new normal if you want to call it that uh, a government that actually listens to experts and actually um you know tighten loosens its its grip on this um neoliberal ideology which has been tightening and tightening so uh, but it's going to be a fight. It's not going to be like the government's like, oh, yes, no, you know, we're good guys. There's no illusion of that. Really, they'll um, slowly wind all of these things back. Hello, I'm from the Australian government. Welcome to the Anthropocene. Fires, floods, bullshit. We know this summer's devastating fires have been hard for you, but they've been hard for us too. We've been forced to accept the science, kind of. Sure, it took the country being reduced to an ashen tomb for people, homes, trees and over one billion animals, but hey, better late than never, right? Due to this catastrophe, we've decided it's time to take action. Introducing our new and updated climate policy. Get fucking used to it. Under Get Fucking Used To It, we pledge to finally acknowledge climate change is real and commit to doing jack shit about it. We'll be using words like resilience and adaptation. And what this all means is get fucking used to it. Choking on smoke, kids in gas masks, dead fireys, dead animals, dead homes, dead reefs, and a dead tourism industry. No problem. 
problem. Try Get Fucking Used To It. It's all part of the new and exciting stage of our abusive relationship with you, where rather than ceasing our shit fuckery, we tell you your only choice is to adapt to it. And that, kids, is how you gaslight a nation. Speaking of gas, we haven't even waited for the fires to end to spend shit tons of your money for more gas we don't need, but which will help ensure the next fire season is even worse. So as things start to fall apart, and let's be clear, this summer was just a taster, you might want to start organising your own communities. Because you're on your own, dickheads. We'll be in Hawaii sending thoughts and prayers. What's that? You thought our job is to keep you safe? Oh, sweetheart. Our real job is to keep them safe from you. That's why, as we just saw, your big sack of shit in chief will take the heat for them during climate disasters. And it's why, if terrorists had caused the fraction of the damage these fires did, we'd go to war. But since it was mainly caused by our donors, we'll go and reward them with approvals to build this tumour drill for oil in the bite and launch the most polluting project ever built in Australia. Relax. We only contribute 1.3% of global emissions. Well, 4% if you count our exports, which makes us the fifth biggest emitter. And per capita, that makes us approximately the fucking worst. But why let facts get in the way of a solid bullshit excuse? Well, because the last thing we want you to realise is that, far from being insignificant, Australia's the best place nation to lead on climate action. We have the wealth and knowledge and we're basically the world capital of sun porn. Unfortunately, it's also governed by us, the most corrupt gaggle of egregious shitlords, led by a man steeped in a delusional apocalyptic cult whose idea of leadership is to force people who've lost everything to shake hands before telling them to get fucking used to it. Join us next week for more on how we'll keep sinking your money into bullshit grants and tourism ads rather than properly funding fire services and clean energy. Australian government. So where the bloody hell are you? No, seriously, we can't see you through all the smoke. Authorised by the Department for Thoughts and Prayers. Is there any indication that they're actually going to change their policies on climate, on fossil fuel, and, and you know, in, a, in, a, in, a, in the kind of radical way that's necessary? Look, that as a result of the fires, I think it has changed. It has changed, I would say, not so much the policies. Those remain unchanged. They're still pushing forward with all this sort of stuff. But let's say the the rhetorical ground has shifted in the sense that the denial and the, the sort of the arguments of uh, saying, oh, we, there is not enough evidence. So, you know, that all of that has gone out the window, you know. Not being able to talk about climate during uh, an emergency has gone out the window. There was always like, this isn't the time to talk about the climate in the middle of a fire, you know, a disaster. So the government has much reduced arsenal of bullshit to, uh, to use in the conversation. But that's just the start. You know, in terms of policies, no, if anything, under cover of um, – of the pandemic, quite a few things have gone ahead. Uh, I've got a little list of shit fuckery here that some uh, uh, friends and supporters have sent us saying, you know, we should make a video about um, what has been happening in the background while so everyone's been talking about the pandemic, and it's quite alarming. Um, you know, moratoriums on onshore um, gas uh, mining have been lifted. Um, you know, all sorts of uh, approvals for coal mines and have have gone by literally unchecked you know so you know, the government definitely isn't slowing down its policies um on 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 that front as far as i'm aware um but it, ha it but what's changed is the the rhetorical ground which i think is a necessary first step to actually attacking its policies also remember we just had an election only a year ago so the government is, isn't in any rush to sort of appease any there's no you know it doesn't face an electoral judgment uh, uh, until the 
2022. So there's plenty more time for them to help their rich mates in the coal and uh, gas industry to get a bit richer. If this economic crisis deepens and goes on months and in, in the U.S., it looks like it could go on for a year or two years. I mean, it may go on until there's a vaccination. There may be no safe way to really get people back to work. Um, there really is a stirring uh, that looks like there could be a kind of awakening of sections of the American working class and, and a rise of a kind of a spontaneous movement. Now, you can't obviously see it in the streets, uh, but there's a lot of wildcat strikes going on across the U.S. Um, there have been some protests, even keeping social safe distancing, but in the streets. But if this, if this does get deeper, um, there may be a, a spark of a kind of people's movement that we haven't seen for a long time. Uh, do you see that happening in Australia? I would say not to the same extent because, you know, as I said, the government here has really, um, in, in some ways, has sort of ingratiated itself to large sections of the population. But, but how, a, long, how long can they keep doing the kind of subsidies? No, well, because they, they're doing it. it in the U.S., but they can't keep doing it for months and years. I mean, they can, but they won't. Yeah. Well, here there's it's it's open ended, you know, and the, the the discussion is when will it when will it stop? Um the earliest that I've seen being discussed, this was on Rupert Murdoch's news channel where they pushing very much to end the sort of the bonanza as they might call it, um sooner rather than later, and they said around July. But um a lot of people are saying, you know, it would have to be extended until September. Um, that's still a significant um, time frame. And obviously, I don't know if that's long enough. We don't know how things are going, but our numbers with COVID-19 are far better than the United States. So we, that might be a realistic time frame. Um, and whilst that happens, there is sort of less of a, less of a, I'm, I, I'm no expert. I'm just, just my sort of my feeling is that there's less of an, uh, an incentive for, you know, for a, a working class movement to really kind of rise up and, and push back. But, um, on the flip side of that, once eventually the government is going to wind all of these policies back, and the worst thing that it could do in in you know in, heading into an election in uh, in twenty twenty two here is to sort of say right now we have to pay this money back you know because we've gone into debt so now we have to balance they go back to their own uh, their old sort of we've got to balance the budget kind of crap. And they start introducing austerity measures to really cut back even harder, uh, all with the justification that, look, you know, we helped you out during that time and now we have to pay, pay all that money back. Um, if that were to happen, then uh, that puts us in the same camp, uh, really, uh, or something similar to what the US is going through. So we might start to see that here in Australia, but perhaps not this year. We might only see it next year. Uh, the danger in the United States is that a lot of discontent, a lot of social unrest, uh, movement amongst the working class, it doesn't necessarily have to turn out progressive. Uh, in fact, the far right is way more organized than the left is right now. And the chances, uh, possibility of, of a you know Trump-inspired, uh, very reactionary movement, and there's stirrings of it. Uh, you can see there were, there were actually protests uh, and, and very legislatures in, across the country, especially in Trump parts of the country, uh, protesting the social distancing. Uh, and, and it's become synonymous with a, a right-wing cause now to say the pandemic is being exaggerated and things like this. Uh, 
So the, the possibility of a real strengthened right nationalist movement uh, is also a possibility. Uh, does that seem to have any potential legs in Australia? Uh, well, absolutely. I mean, we've seen the stirrings of that, again, on a much smaller scale. Um, but we've had some demonstrations here. Um, the, the difference is that the so people who pushed those demonstrations too hard ended up getting arrested. <laughs> so, you know, um, it's it's a different political climate here. Um, I don't think that that's happened anywhere there, that law enforcement has actually ha- – has that happened? Has anyone been arrested there? participating in sort of opening up the economy or getting, you know, or ending the, the lockdown? It's- I, 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 I'm not aware. Listen, I haven't followed it perfectly. I don't, I'm not aware of it, uh, although you, you would think they're violating some kind of, you know, stay-at-home laws, but I, I haven't seen anybody arrested. I know that one case, somebody um, using Facebook uh, Messenger made some threats against the Wisconsin governor, um, and they were credible threats. So they they had their house, uh, they you know the SWAT team came down, and they've been arrested um, and potentially facing a criminal investigation. So obviously, some people who who go too far are getting uh, getting um, you know facing the pointy end of the law. But generally. Um, here in Australia, it's much more. There's a much more of a sense of um, you know taking this seriously, and it's a minority. But look, who knows? Um, you know what will happen. We have a lot of. Um, it's just waiting. I mean, it's the same thing with the gun lobby here in Australia. Gun manufacturers are really waiting for the moment. They're constantly pushing and chipping away at the the you know the gun laws that we have here that were introduced during um, the late, the mid '90s after our uh, Port Arthur massacre. Uh, where a um, where a shooter um, killed twenty six uh, people, and immediately the all guns were, were with, with the exception of people who have um, have them for uh, legal and through permits and many checks and balances that have to be passed. But you know, the gun manufacturers are constantly trying to undo that here, and it's the same thing with um, with with you know various other aspects that are trying to uh, open up Australia to um, the same kind of. Um, you know, also privatizing um, uh, health um, and um, and, and uh, health in, um, cover that we have here, which is basically a form of uh, universal health cover. Um, so yeah, look, it could it could, but I'm I think we're we're quite a distance away from that. But it's it, I've got to say, looking at the US from outside, it's such a shit show. It's just incredible how you would think that something like the COVID nineteen pandemic would be an equalizer you know, that that it would actually cause uh, people to come together. You know, that's what's happened in a lot of societies. It's kind of like really, you know, the whole idea of like we're in this together, um, which obviously isn't entirely true. But still, there's a sentiment of that. I don't see that happening in the US. If anything, it's taken existing divisions and rifts and, and amplified them. Well, the US is really, at the very least, like two countries, and it's probably more like three, four, or five. But there's a tremendous uh, split, urban-rural, uh, big city, small town. In the big cities, I think there's a tremendous sense of solidarity. Uh, the, uh, you know, that it's a tradition that started in Europe and now it's in the U.S. You know, it's 7 o'clock at night. Everyone goes out on their porches and verandas and terraces and they make noise in uh, support of the frontline workers, you know, doctors and nurses. Um, there's a there's I think a real sense of solidarity uh, in in the more urbanized places, um, but and and that's true in terms of the politics. The big cities 
almost never vote uh, for the Republican Party. And I'm not suggesting the Democratic Party on the whole is very progressive, but the cities to a large extent are. And, and so that there, the, the lack of solidarity you're seeing and, and the kind of uh, wanting to open up the states very quickly and being able, willing to sacrifice workers who are going to die. In fact, there's Texas opened up very quickly and uh, there's already been a big spike in infections. Um, it, it's, it's, it's a very big urban rural split. So yeah, I think there's the solidarity is there. It's just not in those areas that are less educated and it's in the areas that are less educated and poorer, uh, that are generally speaking more voting for Trump and the, and the Republicans. Um, let me, let me switch to something, uh, cause you, you talk about shit show. So now to use one of your favorite words, another big Trump shit fuckery is the trying to really yeah. ramp up tensions with China. Yeah. Uh, not just trade war. There, there's actually uh, the massive increase in the military budget here. Uh, you know, 700 billion plus. Uh, it's really over a trillion. Uh, was justified by three words by the Secretary of Defense, uh, China, China, China. Uh, it's not just about trade, but there's even open talk. Uh, Steve Bannon, who's still in Trump's ear, openly talks about a military confrontation in the South China Sea. Uh, Australia is kind of in the middle of all that. Um, what's, what's your take on it and how are people responding to this? Look, um, I've, Australia is always, it's our foreign policy ever since 1788 with the, the first arrival of the first um, uh, British invaders here on this land has always been to seek out you know, the most dominant power and to allow, uh, uh, ally ourselves and to sort of ingratiate ourselves with that power. And so far, it's always served the best interests of Australia to be um, very closely aligned and subservient to first to Britain and then to America. Um, but now we face this uh, dilemma that, you know, I mean, it's it's not new. It's it, the t these tensions um, in the South China Sea have been brewing for some years now. Um, you know, China is a huge, um, you know, our economy is massively dependent on, on China for exports of raw materials. Australia, um, has uh, embarked on a policy of, you know, instead of producing its own, um, processed goods like steel and, and so on, exports everything and then re-imports it all. Uh, so we export the raw materials and it's all designed to enrich uh, a, a certain class of, uh, of individual here. And I call them individuals because there's very few of them, extremely wealthy billionaire miners who very much control and, 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 uh, and influence policy um, and governments here in Australia. So that's, you know, those are the sort of, you know, very broad brushstrokes. Those are the sort of, that's a dilemma that Australia has to face is whether to, uh, you know, try and, um, and, and make it clear which side we stand on. But whichever side we pick will be the one that uh, our uh, wise leaders will have thought is one that will benefit maintaining um, the current um, uh, status quo. So I don't know how that's going to go. There'll probably be some, some, I know that our government has supported the investigation uh, into uh, the origin of the virus, not as a way of, um, I, th I believe they've sort of qualified that by saying it's not about sort of chasing up some wild conspiracy theory, but it, as a genuine attempt to understand how it happened and, you know, how, what lessons can we learn so that this doesn't happen again, which I think is absolutely common sense. So, yeah, it, I, I, that's all I know. I'm not... Um, I'm not sure exactly how it's going to play out other than to, I 
pretty sure that Australia will just continue very, being very strategic and calculating about which side suits it most uh, to be on. And I, I, I would be very doubtful if it would um, switch, you know, um, you know, turn its back on, on China unless it was absolutely necessary because of the economic um, issue. But who knows? So you're not seeing the kind of anti-China sentiment being cultivated in Australia that we're seeing in the United States? Not, I don't, not from our government. Look, I, I might have missed something in the last few days. I've been building a cubby house with our kids and I've just been loving having a bit of a week away from the news. But I, like I said, our government is always very careful not to, not to be too outspoken towards China because of the, the financial uh, mining interests that, that really weigh very heavily on it. So as far as I know, any any anything that our government says is very sort of politely phrased. But I, I'm pretty sure China has been, you know, has been very clear on, on on putting Australia back in its place. You know, they've been pushing back very strongly against criticisms. Um, and there's a strong campaign to sort of shut down any criticism of China, I feel like. I feel like China does deserve um, criticism for for some of the things, and for others, it's um, those are motivated by political bias and potentially some racist, xenophobic sentiments as well. And I don't see anything here approaching the level of what Trump is doing, which is an overtly uh, calculating uh, attempt to um, to to really um, heighten tensions and to create. Um, yeah, uh, an opposition which I think will benefit him going into the election. Again, he sees himself as a wartime president. He's at war with the virus. Uh, he wants. He probably wants to be at war with as many people as possible to cultivate that victim uh, image that uh, that serves him very strongly. I think there's you know that the victim sort of identity is really powerful within the um, his um, voting base. The uh, one of the I think dangers is the possibility of a more serious confrontation with Iran. Um, I, don't, I doubt it would be a you know overt kind of military intervention like it was in Iraq, but more serious attempts to destabilize the government there. And, and I wouldn't rule out some uh, excuses found for some kind of bombing or, some, or something like that. How, how does that play out in Australia? Has, has the Australian government uh, participated in this isolating of Iran? Well, I mean, the you know, the <laughs> with the bombing already happened, with it feels like ancient history. But uh, you know, the attack that uh, that happened that killed um, the top Iranian general, which now feels like such a sort of distant memory. Um, you could already see how the, the Australian government really kind of didn't, you know, it was very tepid in its, uh, you know, in its response. Uh, we don't we don't get involved in the in these things other than to just sort of kowtow and be very. Um, appeasing to the powers that we seek to ingratiate ourselves with here, um, our government at least. Um, yeah, I again, I haven't seen anything that would change my mind about that. We, we, our government isn't, you know, you have to look at, uh, even our opposition party is very cowardly and very meek on all these things. The only party, significant political party here that says anything is the Greens party, which um, is kind of our progressive um Left party, the the Labour, which is um, the opposition party, is very much a centre right party. 
um, and it has. And you, 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 you'd, one of your videos was uh, the shit party and the shit light party. Hello, I'm from the Australian government. You know, the shit party. And I'm from the shit light party. Your soon-to-be new Australian government. Whatever you cow. Shut up, your mole. And together we form the, the two-party two system. system. Are you wondering whether to vote shit or shit light this election? Do you think you need to vote for the lesser of two shits because voting for anyone else would help the shitter party to win? Good. That means you have no clue how our voting system works. Which is grouse for the coal, gas and mining lobbies that own both of us. Because thanks to this, whatever the outcome of the election, they win. The last thing we want you to understand is that, unlike these poor bastards, in Australia it's impossible to waste your vote. Well, unless you draw a dick on your ballot. That's because we have preferential voting. Preferential voting allows you to vote for the candidate you really want. And if your first choice doesn't win, your second choice is counted. And so on. For example, let's say you really want to see serious action on the climate emergency so your kids won't inherit a waterless, fucked up, dead-ass planet. You could give your first preference to a not-shit candidate. One that isn't owned by these bastards. And who'll fight to ensure your kids have a future, rather than coal. You can then put shit light after them. And to ensure we don't get your vote, you could put us last. After all, that's where we always put you. Sure, your first choice might not receive the majority required to win a seat, but that's okay. Since you put shit light after them, your vote will flow to us anyway. So it's no big loss. Even if they don't win, they get these benefits thanks to your first preference vote. But if enough of you do this, some of those not-shit candidates will win some seats. They would then become an MP and sit on the crossbench, allowing them to vote on proposals for new coal mines, oil drilling in the bite, fracking the NT, and other planet-killing shitfuckery. We try to scare you away from not-shit candidates by telling you bullshit like, you're wasting your vote, and you're helping the shit party win, and they're not a party of government. But that's just to distract you from the truth that the more not-shit MPs you vote to the crossbench, the more we have to listen to you rather than our fossil fuel donors. Thank fuck, most of you have no idea about this and will waste your vote in the only way possible in Australia. By putting one of us first, instead of making your vote truly count with preferential voting. Two-party system. Making your government shit either way. Authorised by the department for not teaching you this stuff in school. That's right. Yeah. So we refer to the you know the, the incumbent, the Liberal Party, as a shit party, and the, the opposition as a shit light. There's a little bit of difference. It's not it's not true to say that they're the same. And possibly this could also apply to you know Trump and Biden in the coming election. Um, it's it's tempting to just go are oh, they both shit? But no, they, you know they're, they're slightly better, but um, they're very much. Um, uh, not enough, uh, especially like you take the climate emergency. Our, you know, the Labor Party went to the election, last election, um, sort of promoting its policy of fracking the Northern Territory, opening up huge, vast reserves of, um, of onshore gas to fracking, which we know would have completely um, exhausted our Paris uh, climate budget within a matter of years. Um, so, you know, they, they don't, they don't, they, they're very much spineless and very, um, in, in, um, you know, afraid of going too far, and now they they in that last election, the Labor Party was punished. They they lost that election, um, and now they're going even less. Uh, you know, they they actually took other than a few things, they were quite they took quite a progressive ca- uh, policy to the election, and now they they just learned their lesson, and they instead of going well, we should have actually been more bold and more progressive, and and also not made a few other mistakes, which I won't go into now. Um, 
they've gone the opposite direction and actually gone, you know, we need to be more conservative in our approach. So Australia is headed probably for another decade of, of conservative um, government um, unless something drastic happens. And I'm, when I mean, so when I say drastic, I mean like half the country burning down. If we have a few more of these events, I think uh, it, it might change things. The uh, nothing like the Sanders type movement. I learned from one of your videos that you've got a, pr a priority voting system. You have to mm. quickly tell me how the heck you got that, which actually allows you to mm. pick party number one, which in theory, if you wanted, could be the Green Party. But if they're not going to win, your party number two could be shit light, which at least is better than just shit. Um, how did you ever, first of all, how did Australia ever get a voting system like that? Because I don't know any of the Anglo-American countries that have such a thing. And, and two, is there any chance that the Greens could become uh, some real movement behind them at a Sander-esque mm. or better kind of level? Yeah. Um, so I don't know how we got the system. Um, I, I feel I, you know, I came to Australia in my early 20s. I uh, moved here from, from Europe, from Italy. Um, I didn't go to school here. I'm not sure if they teach this stuff in school. I don't think they do because a lot of people don't, here don't understand our own political electoral system. So they, the reason we made that video on the eve of the last election was really to help explain that probably it was a little bit too late, but that video is now in circulation and it's helping a lot of people to understand the, the, the difference because we watch a lot of the you know American media and we kind of are conditioned to believe that we have a similar system where um, your vote is, can be wasted. The key thing to understand about preferential voting is that you can't waste your vote. So you can vote for the most obscure... Uh, candidates that you want simply because they, you know, they're promising to, you know, um, give you a free pony as uh, as one of your candidates uh, offers there, uh, Vermin Supreme. So you could vote for Vermin Supreme as number one uh, on 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 the ballot, and um, they would they would start counting all the votes, and it, once they reached, um, you know, once they see that your first choice. Uh, didn't um, have enough votes to win. They they basically send all of those, all of your, um, all of the votes for Vermin Supreme will go to the, the person that um, you've marked second on your ballot. So that might be, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, Joe Biden or whatever. Um, and if that then doesn't, um, if if he doesn't have the, uh, enough to form a majority, which is um, you know fifty one percent or whatever, uh, um, then it goes on to the next candidate kind of thing. So it's, there's a constant flow on process. Um, it's a very clever system. It basically means you vote for your, your whoever you want to win and then that flows on to your second choice, third choice, fourth choice, and you can choose who to put last on the ballot. So if you really don't want your vote to go to Donald Trump, for example, you might put him last on, on, on the ballot or vice versa. You could put Joe Biden or whatever. Um, it's it, it basically gives you a lot of control. It, it basically means you can really make your vote count uh, instead of going, well, I've just got to play a game here of going, well, who's most likely to win? That's wasting your vote. You have a system in the, in the United States where you're literally, your vote is wasted or let's say more more precisely, it, it's you're not using, you can't use that vote uh, effectively. You can't really make it count. Whereas here, if you understand how the system works, and this is a big if because there's a lot of, 
um, sort of misinformation going around. We still get arguments from you know the major parties saying, "Don't waste your vote. Don't vote for a minor party. Don't vote for the Greens because that you know they, that vote might not come to us." Kind of thing. There's a lot of misinformation, but if you do understand how it works, you can really make your vote count here. And it's I don't understand why. Well, I totally understand why other countries don't have it because it really. It allows um, for what we have here in, in our political chamber is a crossbench. So that's a, a really important thing is the Greens don't really need to win a majority to form government. They just need to have enough people on that crossbench because they can then vote. They vote will then determine whether a bill on national security or on passing a surveillance state measure or you know um, allowing for refugees to come back to the mainland from our offshore torture camps in order to receive medical treatment. All of these, all of this legislation um, has to go through. Um, the you know both houses of um, government, and if the if the Greens have enough seats in the crossbench, they can determine whether a bill passes or not. You know, so it's very important um, to to use that vote accurately. It doesn't a lot of people think? What's the point? They're not going to form government. That that's not uh, that's not a likely thing to happen anytime in the in the future. But having a strong crossbench, and it's not just the Greens; it can be independent. We've got a lot of great independent uh, MPs as well. Um, that really can make the difference between a government being able to have carte blanche in passing um, uh, shitty legislation with the help of, right. of, of, a, of, a, of a spineless Labour opposition party than if we don't. Uh, so just to conclude, what's what's the next shit fuckery video going to target? Look, um, I like. I'm sorry, I like saying that word. Yeah, no, I, I actually <laughs> never heard it before. I know you didn't coin it, but it's the first time I ever heard it. <laughs> I don't know who coined it. A lot of people say that we have coined it. I was like, well, I didn't. I didn't kind of. I thought it existed. Uh, we definitely. Yeah, no, it I too. looked it up. It's it's in the Urban Dictionary, right, so it's okay. been around a little bit. How it long actually? Is- act, actually, it goes back. I think a hundred or two hundred years or something. <laughs> Great. Shit, fuckery is not new. Apparently, that's that's. I've I I get constantly asked about this, and I said, well, I didn't see it anyway. Uh, but I'm I'm would be very surprised if it didn't uh, already g- exist because it's the combination of two very common words. But um, we definitely helped it to come into the sort of into wider circulation, and I feel like it very kind of accurately captures the spirit of many of the policies that our government and other governments um, uh, pass uh, I- I- into law. And um, one of the great comments that I've seen on our videos is that. Uh, someone posted a comment which I kind of want to frame. It said that we are all united. No, the shitfuckery unites us all. You know, it's kind of a, a word that it, it crosses boundaries. A lot of people sort of identi- identify the government as a as a as a shitfuckery um, uh, dabbling well, government. The, the women, the women that work with you, including your partner Lucy and the and the two actors, the way they're able to sell the the joke over and over again you know they smile and they're so serious up into it and then they smile and then they say you know it's not just shit fuckery there's other swearing and you know they're going to do it and it doesn't matter because you still you've always been able to create this tension as if they're being serious yeah it's really wonderfully done yeah, well, that's the power of advertising. I never knew I was this good at, at sort of uh, crafting these little messages. But um, no, it's it's um, as I've said before. I find it, like I find it therapeutic to kind of like you know use this medium because again, it's not it's not just usurping the voice of the government, but it's also usurping the tools of mass marketing and, and advertising. Well, for everyone that is enjoying uh, watching. Uh Honest government ads on the analysis.news, uh, you should know that 
Giordano, Juice Media, is letting us use these videos without any charge to us. And I'd really encourage you, if you watch to the end of the video, you'll see there's all kinds of ways to donate to Juice Media because Juice Media does depend on ordinary people donating money just the way we do. And uh, I would en encourage you to do that. Donate to them, donate to us, but uh, make sure you support Juice Media. Thanks very much for joining us, Jude. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Paul. Take care. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news podcast. I'm from the government with an urgent message about the coronavirus. We know many of you are confused. Some say it's no big deal. Italians are freaking out. The Chinese are hiding out. And Aussies seem to think the virus attacks your butthole. <laughs> Medical experts have coined a scientific term to describe the situation we're now facing, a shit show. It's important to note that the shit show isn't caused by the virus itself, which we can manage, but rather by dangerous levels of egregious dumb fuckery spreading about the virus. Through forensic analysis, experts have traced the path of the dumb fuckery back to this malignant shit funnel, who said he's not worried about corona since it's no worse than the flu. One of the symptoms of dumb fuckery includes not understanding simple math, leading many to laugh off this virus for only having a death rate of about 2%. Since experts say the US alone could have 96 million cases, 2% of that comes to approximately a lot of fucking dead people. Of course, the death rate is much higher among older people. This has been largely dismissed due to another symptom of dumb fuckery, not caring about the elderly, or as experts call it, being an asshole. If left unchecked, this shit show can drastically worsen the impact of coronavirus by overwhelming a country's healthcare services. For example, the US only has one million hospital beds. Oh, and face masks will probably run out too. So as doctors and nurses get infected, there could also be a shortage of them. When you combine all that with a government that has no regard for science, a vastly uninsured workforce without sick leave and millions of guns, you get what experts call a munted shit show. To avoid a munted shit show in your country, experts are now advising governments worldwide to be the exact opposite of America. If you're not already infected by dumb fuckery, we ask you to spread this graph among your friends and family instead of bullshit memes. It shows how by flattening the contagion curve, we can slow down the spread of the virus so our hospitals and carers can cope. You can help flatten the curve by practicing hand hygiene avoiding large gatherings and phoning your doctor if you develop symptoms. Delaying the spread even by a month could prevent thousands of deaths and not just corona deaths. It also means fewer deaths due to any emergencies requiring hospital care, which could mean you or your loved ones. And remember, if you do run out of toilet paper, Rupert Murdoch produces a wide range of bog roll replacements worldwide. This has been a message from your local government franchise. Goodbye. Authorized by the Department for Responding to Global Emergencies when they threaten the stock market.